Welcome back to Tagist, the art of getting your shit together. Lindsay here, and I have always felt that it's important to share our stories about our struggles and the lessons and triumphs from those struggles. See, I've had my fair share of successes, challenges, stress, and trauma, and everything I just labeled looks different for everyone, right? Because we're all experiencing this life in different ways. And so does everyone's relationship with alcohol. Now, in this episode, I talk about my relationship with alcohol, the back and forth I had for years, and finally being able to put it down without feeling deprived or like I'm missing out on something. I believe having conversations like this is important for us to be informed on how part of our culture have not only normalized, but glamorized an addictive substance, a substance so coveted that the person who forms a problem They are the problem, not the addictive substance, which I've always looked at as being backwards. Now I get why people drink and continue to drink even after they've questioned it. I did it for over 10 years and would never judge anyone who drinks. Most everyone in my life does drink and would be considered a quote unquote normal drinker. What worries me is I knew how my drinking was affecting me and most would have thought that I was a normal drinker. This is one of those episodes where you have so much to share, you don't even know where to start. Now, this is my story along with Jenna's insights and perspectives. There may be similarities, but again, every story is different. And this is mine. If you feel this is a topic that may trigger you, we totally understand. Please tune back in a couple of weeks where we will have some new topics and interviews to share with you. Remember, we are not doctors and do not promote or endorse any specific diagnosis or treatment plan. Please always seek out the advice from your trusted medical professional. Detoxing and withdrawal from an advanced drinking state can be deadly and is not to be taken lightly. Jenna and I are two lifelong learners and are always striving to do better. This is why we named the podcast Tagist, The Art of Getting Your Shit Together. It is an art, always navigating and growing as we progress through life. If you are someone on the precipice of wanting to reduce or cut out alcohol out of your life, this episode may have some takeaways that resonate with where you are and where you want to go. We laugh through some of some of the sharing, and that's just us. This is a serious topic, and I do get on a couple of friendly rants, so forgive me there. <laughs> Take what you need and leave the rest. This is something I've gotten really good at over the years. Before we continue with this two-part series, I want to thank all of my friends and family for being so supportive. I just adore my circle of friends. We've created some of the best memories over the years, drunk and sober, and they've been so supportive with my new endeavor. And of course, a special shout out to my husband, Kyle, who has been so gracious and understanding in seeing and hearing my struggles and now supporting me each day as I work on my sobriety. Thank you. I love you. Now let's jump in. Welcome to the art of getting your shit together podcast, where each week we help you identify the bullshit that's holding you back and discover the courage to take action to create a life you love and enjoy. Well, hello. How are you today? I'm fantastic. That's wonderful. It is a beautiful Sunday morning here in AZ, and we are recording this via Skype today, just doing our own thing. It's been a crazy, 
I feel like I say that almost every time. It's probably everyone's listening, probably like, whatever. It's always crazy. It's always busy. We're all busy. But it's been wild in a good way. We went to Disneyland Mm -hmm. with Avery. That was fun. She really enjoyed it. Disneyland, just the thought of it gives me absolute anxiety, but it was fun. Yeah, you got to go when it was like COVID time. So there were less people. Yeah, they have half capacity. So so rather than waiting an hour, for every ride, it was just about 20 minutes to 30 minutes. There was a couple of rides that it was, I think for the cars experience, it was 70 minutes. But overall, it was a great experience. And Avery rallied. We rallied from the start to the end. We were out all day. We got some serious steps and definitely didn't feel guilty eating all the churros and the ice cream oh and God. everything else. I can't. <laughs> the churros, I can't. Like, you can't stop thinking about it's, they're so good. I actually didn't have any churro. Oh my God. Kyle loves them. I really wanted, okay, so I haven't been to Disneyland since maybe 90, 1997. It's been a long yeah. time. They didn't have downtown <laughs> Disney. They didn't have California Adventure. And I remember always having my big lollipop, which we got, right? The little swirly rainbow lollipop. And I remember having chocolate covered frozen bananas. Oh, yeah. I've seen those. They don't have them anymore. What? And I was pissed because I wanted to take a banana picture, right? Yeah. That's a requirement. (laughs) It's a requirement for Jen and I when we travel. There's a banana. There's a banana involved. It's our inside joke. Strange. But they didn't have one. And I was so mad. I wonder why. Probably COVID. Blame everything on COVID. But they have cotton candy, which is a disaster to try to eat, especially with a four-year-old. That's true. They have the churro. They have chocolate-covered yeah. marshmallow sticks, but no oh, banana. Man. Anyway. There's probably a banana shortage. Maybe. If I had to guess, that's probably <laughs> what it is because there's a shortage of everything in the world right now. But, yeah, the churro. Didn't realize how great it was until I had one. I actually didn't even know it was a thing, and then I ate it, and I was like, <gasps> I don't know what they put in this, but it's heroin, crack, something. And then I got another one. Like I was thinking about it so much that I had to go find another cart the next day and get a churro and they were off their game the next day because it was not as good as the first churro. Mm-hmm. So that was disappointing. <laughs> I, like, I should have just left it there. It would have been the churro that changed your life. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we are recording separately because I am a hermit now with my surgery coming up. So I'm. This COVID, it will never end, it feels like. Yeah, and I have a walking germ here, and there was a COVID outbreak at Avery's preschool, and we were just at Disneyland and not wearing masks, and there was zero social distancing when you're cramming in all the lines and everything, so it -hmm. is what it is. So we're protecting Jenna so she can have her surgery and have a successful one, and yeah, Another exciting thing is I officially put in my notice at the funeral homes. What are we going to talk about anymore? Well, you know, I could probably. (laughs) You're not going to come home with like these weird ass stories. Well, yeah. And me being out of the care center, not even embalming, I feel like my stories have been lacking and I have to like reminisce on old stories. Yeah. However, now that I won't be an employee with still being as dignified as possible, I will be able to share more stories with our listeners because I won't have to be so mindful about what I say with respect to everyone involved. But yeah, 
I could share a little bit more. We should do a whole series. Yeah, it'll be great. It'll be I, great. I think it'll be great. <laughs> we might just have to start a spinoff. <laughs> yeah, I was joking. I was like, how? I was joking with Jenna a while ago, and I was like, how much? How many followers and listeners do you think would be into like watching me and Balm and then talking about true crime? Because I love Bailey Sarian, who does her makeup and talks about true crime. I love her. I watch her in the morning sometimes. And I was like, man, people would eat that up. But it just, yeah. it would be highly frowned upon <laughs> as yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even the creators on TikTok who are like family owned, funeral homes, they don't show anything ever. And there's another guy who's a medical examiner that I follow on TikTok who or maybe it's Instagram, I don't know, but he talks about his job, but he never obviously is. There was never a person in there, which makes sense. Yeah. Because that person didn't have really consent to your entertainment channel to be a part of that. And entertaining potentially millions of people Yes, with their naked body displayed. Not ideal. Have that. And then you also, today, what we're going to be talking about is the beginning of your sobriety journey. Yeah. Which has been a long time coming, I feel like. Long time coming. Before I even met you. Years and years and years of navigating, rejecting, suppressing, all the things. And so I am no expert. I'm new to being a non-drinker and the road to sobriety. However, I feel like it's important because I know I am not the only one. I know I'm not the only one who has been feeling this way and had been feeling this way for many, many years where I felt like I was rejecting and suppressing these thoughts about drinking because drinking is embedded everywhere in today's culture. Wherever we look, turn, every room we go into, every event, it's everywhere. It's on our feeds. It's on our stories. Everyone is, you know, talking about hashtag, you know, mommy drinks wine, hashtag pillow for wine. It's like the top Peloton hashtag. Oh my God, really? Yeah. It's wow. just the wine culture. Well, there's a girl at Orange Theory who she's like, I am here because I like to drink. And I'm like, okay. I mean, at least you're taking care of yourself in other <laughs> ways, but... She just like did not know shit. It's like, yeah, we really like to drink. So this is my way of balancing it out. I'm like, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 And that's normal, right? Yeah. And I'm I'm sure a lot of people would hear that and be like, yeah, me too. That's why I work out harder. That's why I I train or that's why I eat the way I do because I try to counterbalance the alcohol. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But we've believed growing up. Most of us, I'm sure that it's normal to imbibe with an alcohol beverage, whether we're celebrating, it's just an occasion, we're connecting, you know, hell, people think that they deserve a drink because we're just adulting in this world. I deserve it. And if you're a mom, especially now today, you know, you better grab that wine. You know, you can't mom without the wine. And I'll talk more about the mommy wine culture because the more I just, you know, I'm no saint now, but being more aware of it and just seeing it in the way that it's kind of playing out. And especially during the pandemic, when more people were alone, kids were home, a lot more pressure was being put on parents this last couple of years. There has been, I looked up several reports that 34 to 54% increase in alcohol sales over the last year and a half. Yeah. 
not only are more people drinking, those people are drinking more. And, you know, maybe people who never really wanted to drink feel like they have to now. Who knows? Yeah. I feel like for a lot of people, it's a way to, you may be able to speak to this later, but it's a boredom. It's a pacifier. Oh yeah. You know, when you're bored or whatever, I was talking to you offline, but I was like, what, how did this all even like start the wine thing? How did that like, is that like a, cause wine especially has kind of been destigmatized. You can drink wine and you're classy. Yeah. But if you pour a glass of scotch at noon, people are probably giving you a side eye. Like if people knew about it yeah, or cracking open a beer after work, it's different than if you're pouring yourself a yes. nice glass of Chardonnay or, or Cab. Yeah. If I'm pouring white wine at noon for lunch, I'm very European. But if I open up a 40, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> and the chances of you polishing off the entire bottle of wine are high. Oh, very so high. So it is like comparative to a, a 40. Yeah. But Jesus. why is it different? It's the same makeup. And so... It's probably worse. I think the alcohol content in wine is higher. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, the malt beverage, the malt beer beverage, whatever is in a Mickey's 40. I can't even remember. But to your point, like the glamour part, you know, I felt like I needed wine or vodka or some kind of classy drink because growing up a little bit, not a little bit growing up, you know, as I saw more of kind of sex in the city and, you know, these successful women who are living their best life, they were drinking, you know, I think of even like Game of Thrones, I would watch Game of Thrones and drink my red wine as I watched them, you know, do their thing. And it was just, it's just been embedded in us that this is what adults do. This is what successful adults do. It's just been in our culture for so long that of course we're going to think it's normal. And I don't think if you drink, if you drink a lot, if you drink intermittently, once a year, whatever the case is, I don't judge anyone who drinks. The point of this is, is that I want to share my perspective because I know I'm not the only one who has a successful life and on a societal level has my shit together, but still struggles with drinking. I'm not obviously sitting on a curb mangy with my dog, you know, struggling to get by with a brown paper bag. I'm a successful female that Mm -hmm. apparently has my shit together, but I've got this thing. I got this thing that's been eating at me for a really long time. And even though it's very normal in my family, in my circle of friends, it was bothering me. And so that's why I want to talk about it. So I want to share my perspective, kind of share a little bit about my story, having some data and details within that. And then we'll have another episode with some more of like the history of alcohol. Holly Whitaker wrote an amazing book that pretty much, if I could say, quintessentially changed my life and it's Quit Like a Woman, The Radical Choice to Not Drink in a Culture Obsessed with Alcohol. And um, pulling some segments out of that to really say like, because she compares it to like Big Pharma you know, some of like the, what is it, the food companies, you know, that we have all the stigma around like what these big corporations do and how they process our food. You have the medical industry and she's calling this big alcohol because there used to be big tobacco and the impact that had on us as a society in our culture and how that has completely changed. So she's kind of like, is alcohol having a nicotine moment? 
right? Where it's like this high and then people are like realizing maybe this isn't so great. And then they start to pull back. I'm curious about that too, because I feel like alcohol has been, it'd be fascinating to find out more about the history of alcohol. And then if it is even having a peak or if it's just been part of the human experience since we were able to make it. I mean, we had prohibition where it was illegal and then people Mm -hmm. were making moonshine and then there was all kinds of cultural shit that came on the scene from that, like speakeasies and like basement saloons and all of that. And it's like, okay, so this has been a thing. We've been sneaking this shit since I don't even know when that was like history, like years wise. I don't know when that was, but geez. And then I grew up I've never struggled with drinking, but I grew up in a bar because my parents, my dad, well, my grandparents owned a bar and then my dad inherited the bar. And so my earliest memories were going to the bar and not like I would go to the bar and hang out. But like on Sundays, the bar was closed because I live in a tiny little town. It's illegal to be open on Sundays. It's the Lord's Day. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) And we would clean. I got to see some of the less glamorous part of alcohol consumption. I would sometimes go, there was like a hotel downtown, especially on like New Year's Eve where people would, instead of going home, they would crash at the hotel. So they would put all their kids in one room, hotel room, and I would watch them. I was the babysitter. And then at closing time at 2 a.m., the people came home. I went to the bar. I walked out to the bar where my dad was closing up shop. And I got to see him drag people out of the bar. I got to see, you know, drunk people passed out in booths. I think that might have had a bigger impact on me and my lack of desire to drink. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see. And Jake's like, I don't understand, you know, you don't like to drink. You grew up in a bar. And I'm like, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing desirable about being passed out in a booth and throwing up all yourself and urinating and in the parking lot trying to get to your car. Well, and that's the thing. Like you would see, you know, people had barfed in the parking lot. I don't know how many times they had to take the mirror out of the men's bathroom because it was belligerent drunk men would punch the mirror and d- break it on multiple occasions. And now there's just no mirror in the men's bathroom. They would throw up in the urinal. They would mm-hmm. throw up all over women, all over the sides of the stalls of the bathroom. It was just, that's the gross side of seeing like what, people would experience, you know, you see it sometimes when you go out, but I saw it all the time. All the time. Yeah. And a lot of times when we go out, we may not be closing down the bar and seeing all of it. We're, you know, we're home by the time this is all happening. So alcohol for many is glamorous, but for many, there's a turning point where it becomes unglamorous. And even I'm sure a lot of people who even have any kind of regrets in their lives, maybe it's around alcohol. I know every time I've ever oh, been yeah. like regretted something, saying something, doing something, I was drunk. And even Tiffany Armstrong, yeah, she talks about in almost every event where there's an assault or a date rape situation, there's alcohol involved. You know, people become vulnerable. They're put in scenarios that they would never be in otherwise if they were coherent and sober. That was eye-opening for me when Tiffany was talking about that because I'm thinking not just of me and all the times where I would probably either should have been arrested, had a DUI, put in jail for an extended period of time, whatever the case may be. But I think of Avery. You know, I got fucking lucky. Mm-hmm. There are days where I'm like, God damn, I'm lucky to be here. And I'll share some of that in a little bit. But I think about 
my own daughter and not just setting an example, but being hyper aware of the what ifs. You know, I don't want to worry to death. I try to be realistic, but I want to prevent what I can. I do want to set a good example. So let's dig into some of this real quick. A little bit about me. Drinking has always been a part of my life. My parents drink. My neighbors drank. We'd have sit-outs every night in the cul-de-sac and everyone was drinking. And hell, most people smoked back then, right? And that has since changed. My mom always had her box of shitty white Zinfandel, box of wine in the fridge. My dad, I remember, would always order his CC and sevens. My stepdad drinks beer. We were just around alcohol a lot. And I never thought much about it. But like, I think a lot of kids and the kids that I knew, we would go in and like sneak some, like I would get a little bit of wine out of the fridge and taste it. And it tasted like shit, right? Yeah. The first time you ever taste it, you're like, holy cow. Why I do remember, people like this shit? I know. I just want to preface that this is nature's way of saying stay away. In nature, animals who taste something that is foul and disgusting, that's poison. Doesn't taste good. <laughs> weird. (laughs) Okay. You smell something and it smells horrendous. That's toxic. I'm going to leave that alone. That is nature's way of saying this is not good for you. But yet we force ourselves to form a taste for it. So anyway, even like about 14 or 15, that's when my drinking started to pick up. I remember sneaking like shots of tequila and thinking my esophagus was melting trying to drink tequila, but it started to ramp up and I started to sneak beers. I started to drink more. And when I was 16, God bless my parents. When I was 16, I was dating a 21 year old who was an alcoholic. I would pick him up because he had a DUI. So I was 16. I'd get out of high school. I'd go pick him up. I'd bring him back to my house. But before then we would stop at the store and he'd get like a pack of like Milwaukee's best or some shitty beer. And we would walk into my house, my parents being home. They knew he had beer and we would hang out in my room. I was never drinking it. My mom didn't want me drinking it. Some people would say like, why would your parents ever let you date one, someone who was that much older than you and an alcoholic? They knew how much he drank. Let me just preface this also by saying I was an unruly child. (laughs) I was safer there than going out. They felt, and I would agree with them, that allowing me to be there with him and maybe not in the most desirable relationship was safer for me to be there than they just felt like they had more control and I was better off being there than out anywhere else. Jenna has heard stories even from my stepdad today on how yeah awful I was. I was like, we would not have been friends in high school. No. We were just like... If you were just judging like our record books of who we hung out with, what we did for fun, all of those things, I was an angel and you were a hellion. I wouldn't have ran with you. (laughs) I was a very, very good kid, a do-gooder, as I like to say. And I'm very much a do-gooder now, even though I always had like a tell-it-like-it-is personality. Well, you were smart. Like you weren't like a complete moron. Like you used your brain and your for the most part, a critical thinker, like you were street smart and you were book smart. Yeah. So you were a good, like, didn't you get like really good grades? Yeah. I was almost a straight A student. A's and B's. And usually when kids are fucking around like that, they're not good students. They're not good in school. They're probably being held back at grade or failing or summer school or detention Mm -hmm. or whatever. So you probably were an asshole. You're probably set your ass in detention a lot. I didn't have detention a lot. But I definitely had a mouth and I was 
taller than all the girls. I swear I'm the same height now. I'm 5'5 five five as I was in fifth grade. So I had like that intimidation factor and I definitely used it in my favor. But I had my fair share of trauma in my life. And some I feel like was rather benign, although my therapist and other people would disagree. But like my parents got divorced when I was seven. My grandparents died at an early age. The trigger for me, some of my drinking was definitely after my dad suddenly was killed when I was 13. So processing this, and when I was 14, I almost overdosed. I almost killed myself. I overdosed on over-the-counter cold medication and had my stomach pumped in the high school parking lot and was because I was saying like, I want to die, I want to kill myself, all these things. They had sent me to an evaluation, a low security, low level psychiatric ward, if you will, where I stayed there for about a week and they had to evaluate me. And it was really a cry for help more than anything, if I could look back at it. And then after that, I was kicked out of school freshman year of high school. And I had to like go and testify that I was seeing a counselor and I was doing the work to let me back in so I could graduate the high school I was at because my dad had passed and obviously how traumatizing that was to any child. They were like, okay, Lindsay can come back. Well, that's when other things started happening. That's when I started smoking weed more. That's when I started taking ecstasy pills. That's when I started to drink. And I really loved drinking. I didn't like smoking weed. I could really really do without it. I loved it until I started to drink more. Drinking, however, just fell into place. And it was everywhere, right? It was way easier to get than illegal drugs. Marijuana is legal now, but way easier to get. It all kind of just worked out for me in that way where I was just drinking every weekend. I broke it off with that boyfriend, which was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life, thank God. But after I graduated high school, I had bought a house and my roommate at the time, I was 19, he was 24. And so let's just say that me and my roommates, we had a plethora of booze at any given time. We had the kegerator, the party never ended back then. It never stopped. It finally started to slow down when I had a little more responsibility at work. So I had graduated mortuary school, which I was pretty much hung over every morning in mortuary school. I wasn't very nice to anyone then. I was kind of a bitch then. Those were my more bitchy years where, again, I was like a tell it like it is, but that alcohol really fueled it. And I was still, how do I put it? I was still in like this vengeful state, like a victim. I had a lot of therapy to do still about my dad, my relationship with my parents to the point where my mom co-signed for me to get my own apartment when I was 17. So it was like, I was out, I was trying to do my thing. But from a outsider looking in, I had my shit together. I had great grades. I was in a career that was going to take me places. I had my own house. I had roommates that were basically paying all my bills because you kind of split it and you were just kind of living the dream. I was 19 and living the dream. And we were partying and we were having fun. And back then it was fun. I didn't care if I was throwing up at work. I was having fun with my friends and we were all doing it. So I thought I was doing exactly what I should. And again, we were all getting good grades. We all, all my girlfriends were doing well. And I was trying to live up to that sex in the city expectation of I'm going to have this career. I'm going to be this badass boss. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to drink. I'm going to celebrate. It goes on and on. My drinking started to calm down once I became a manager because then I was responsible for more people than just myself. And I knew I needed to get my shit together a little bit. But 
it started to then ramp up again because then I, once I took on more responsibility, then I started to get into that mentality where I deserved it, right? And I needed it to unwind after a long day. That's what adults did. You came home, you had a hard day, you popped up in a beer or poured yourself a glass of wine to unwind. And so back to what we were saying a little bit earlier, that didn't seem as bad as me going out and drinking vodka, vodka Red Bulls all night and getting completely hammered and coming home and throwing up. This is me, quote unquote, with air quotes, adult drinking. I'm not going out and partying, but now I'm drinking at home and now I'm drinking alone. And this is the turning point. I wasn't going out with my friends and drinking. I was drinking home alone. So now I gave myself permission to drink more and more frequently. Mm-hmm. And that started about my mid-20s. And that's when, and I'm 36 now, that's when my anxiety with my drinking started to take over. And I started to question this. Why am I drinking? How is this serving me? I don't want to do this. And at this time, I was really struggling with my weight as well. And I was like, this isn't helping me. (laughs) This isn't helping the cause of me being any healthier either. So I was really questioning my habits, my relationship with food, and my relationship with alcohol. The last thing I ever wanted to do was go to AA. This was still back then where the stigma was AA is in this crusty, dirty church basement and there's all these weirdos in there, <laughs> right? It's like you've hit rock bottom when you walk into a meeting. And, well, I, and I feel like there's a lot of people who, to your point where you're like, I have my shit together. I'm successful. I was a manager. Like that stigma of like the AA or I'm an alcoholic or I have a problem isn't a thing when you're successful in other areas of your life because alcoholics don't have their shit together. Mm-hmm. They are the people who can't pay their bills, who don't have any friends or they are, you know, like they're so consumed in their alcoholism that everything else has fallen apart around them. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're high functioning alcoholic, I think that's what they call it. I don't know. Yeah. But you're in more denial when you're successful. Yeah. Exactly. I feel like it would be even harder to come to terms with the fact that you have a problem, a problem, and I'm using air quotes. And if your circle is doing similar things, if you were to talk about them, they'd be like, oh, no, you're fine. Yeah. You know, it's fine. You don't have a problem. You're not an alcoholic because people have a stigma about what an alcoholic is. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But tailgating off of what you just said about high functioning and low functioning, you know, listening to a podcast I've been listening to called Recovery Happy Hour, and it's hosted by Trisha Lewis. She's amazing. She has since ended it, but the whole run of the podcast is incredible. But she asked her guests if they're a high or low functioning alcoholic. And everyone on there basically says they're high functioning, but they also say a high bottom, sorry, a low bottom high functioning alcoholic. So yes, most people, most alcoholics are probably high functioning. But when you take a deeper look into how it affects their mental state, their anxiety, the way they manage emotions, the way they're handling relationships, there's a good or great argument that they're not high functioning. On a bird's eye level, you know, an outsider looking in, yes, they would be considered high functioning. But when we look at it, we're not functioning. It's not ideal. And so her asking that is great, you know, to her guests because it gives 
those who are curious about quitting drinking more of a perspective on, you know, look at all these people who have these seemingly normal lives, these seemingly normal people, the people who you look up to, the people who you connect with, the people who you work next to every day who have this dream life, who you may be envious of, they have a problem. They have a problem. And so, yeah, outsider looking in, me just evaluating my own life, I'm like, do I need this? Is this a problem? And I decided that I I did have a problem and I wanted to fix it. I didn't want the wound to be infected and have my arm amputated. I wanted to treat the wound before it got out of hand because it was getting out of hand. Man, and that movie had a big impact on you, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Requiem for a dream. Fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, I really, I will never inject anything into my body. I never did cocaine. I never injected anything because of that movie. <laughs> If you've never seen that movie, it helped somebody. Oh my God. There are one of the hours of my life back after I watched that movie. (laughs) I was just grateful for all the hours I'm going to be gaining (laughs) because I'm not going down that road. So I decided to go to AA. This was just before I had met Kyle, my now husband. And this was in 2013. It was in Gilbert, this very nice area of town. And I had no idea what I was going to walk into. I was completely nervous. I don't even know if I told anybody. I was pretty ashamed that I even thought I needed to go, but I was just going. I was like, what do I have to lose, right? If I'm going to try to change my life, here we go. And I met this woman who then wanted to be my sponsor. And we met. She gave me the big book. I still have this piece of paper that she gave me in my desk. I carry it around with me after all these years. And it says, before I even read it, it was impactful. And I was totally turned off for a couple of reasons. One, I was in a room where all these people were saying things and telling stories that I could relate to. I'm like, these are my people. I am not the only one. These are quote unquote, high functioning humans who seemingly have their shit together, who quit drinking and now are, are trying to drink and either struggling to maintain sobriety or they are living in recovery and having very great success within the recovery journey and living a really incredible life. That was amazing. Then I had this woman reach out and pour her heart out and spent all this time with me, a stranger. We met for coffee. She spent this time with me and she gave me this quote. It says, kiss your life, accept it just as it is today, now, so that those moments of happiness you're waiting for don't pass you by. And I was like, man, life is going, right? Life is always happening. And I want to be here for it. Mm-hmm. I am here for it. And so it was really insightful for me and inspiring. And I had a moment of hope while I was at those meetings. I went to a couple. And the turnoff for me with AA is that I am not a believer of God. I am a spiritual human. I believe that there are things that are greater than me out there. I have rumbled with my spirituality pretty much my whole life since my dad died and him being an atheist and my mom was agnostic. So I never grew up in a religious household either. So the turnoff for me was the God piece and like, let go and let God, and you have to surrender to your helplessness and over alcohol and that you're powerless over alcohol. I'm like, I'm not powerless. 
Holly Whitaker also really breaks down why the structure of AA is helpful, but the way that it's written is outdated because it's really, it was created for white men back in like the forties who had super egos who they were trying to break down their ego to become powerless over something. And like, here's these women coming in and here's what is seemingly our rock bottom because we just walked into an AA meeting and now you want me to be powerless? You want me to surrender? I already feel that way. How can I feel any less than than I already do now? And you want me to do that even more? Mm -hmm. So it was written by a bunch of evangelical men back then, successful men, and it doesn't serve a lot of people now the way it's written. I have since considered going to another woman's AA group. I actually am exploring ones that are around my area because I still love the connection. And I'm more in tune with take what you want and leave the rest. You're there for a reason. You're there to connect. You're there to get support. That's what you're there for. God or no God, higher power, whatever, the universe, whatever you call it, you can name it for what it is. I really struggled with that at the beginning. Now it's easier for me to navigate that. You can reframe it. Yes. Yeah. I think we've talked about this before, but have you looked into Russell Brand's version of AA? I have not. He rewrote. So he had a similar, from what I understand, Russell Brand, the actor, he is extremely spiritual, but he's kind of like almost like on a woo-woo level and his brain operates in a way that most people do not. But he kind of redid the 12-step program so that it appealed to him and it was more up to date with reality. Yeah. I've heard an interview with him talking about that, but I have not read it and I haven't looked into it. God, if you've ever questioned your drinking or thinking, maybe I should quit drinking now is like the best time. Not only are meetings online, you don't even have to go to a dirty, crusty basement, which most of them are not in crusty basements. <laughs> a lot of them are at <laughs> churches, but it's not like what you see in the movies. <laughs> but the, so many things are online. There's so many different support groups and there's some for just women, some for the LGBTQ plus community. There's some that's just black women in recovery. There's so many outlets that you can get so much support, whether it's on Instagram, in-person meetups, the app meetup where you have like social meetups. It's endless. Books, resources, podcasts. All the things. Yeah. So with that being said, I went to a couple AA meetings and I quickly decided, because this is how fucked up our brains are, that quitting alcohol was too hard and it wasn't the alcohol, it was what I was eating. Because my goal back then was to lose weight, not quit drinking. I wanted to lose weight more than quit drinking. If you had asked me then, and if I gave you an honest answer, I would have said, I wish that I could be a skinny alcoholic. I would rather be a skinny alcoholic than a fat, sober person. Hands down. No. Yeah. So what did I do? Because I like the connection in a well, those bitches in Sex and the City are skinny alcoholics, so I get it. Yeah. <laughs> this is it, right? I wanted to live this dream. And mind you that I was ready to move to New York right after I graduated high school. I wanted to be Carrie Bradshaw and mix in some Samantha there with all the promiscuous stuff back then. That was that would have been fun. Anyway, because I wanted to lose weight and I like the connection in AA. I decided, well, I'm going to go to OA 
Overeaters Anonymous. God bless you if you've ever been there. I'm not even going to go into details about it, but it was pretty terrible. Anyway, I want to talk about the fear of being labeled an alcoholic. So Holly Whitaker, the woman who wrote Quit Like a Woman, talks about how there's no stage four alcoholism. Like there's not levels of it as far as when we talk about the term. However, there is an array of severity of alcohol addiction, right? People are heavy drinkers. People are light drinkers. People drink till they're blacked out. Some people black out after two drinks. So there's just every scenario can be unique, even though a lot of them are similar as well. There's similarities there where people can definitely resonate in other people's stories, but there's one label. So regardless of where we are, regardless of how much we drink or what we drink and how it affects our lives and our relationships, there's one label and it's a nasty one. Like who the fuck wants to be labeled an alcoholic? I know I didn't. I never wanted to be labeled that. And that's what kind of steered me away from saying, well, I don't want to quit drinking. The term alcoholism, let's talk about the definition real quick. Alcoholism, it's an addiction to the consumption of alcohol, alcoholic liquor, or the mental illness and compulsive behavior resulting from alcohol dependency. In other words, someone who can't control their consumption of alcohol. They have since changed that, and alcoholism, now known as alcohol use disorder, is a condition in which a person has a desire or physical need to consume alcohol, even though it has a negative impact on our life. To me, when I read that, it's like the definition of insanity. We know this has an impact, a negative impact. I'm going to keep doing it anyway. So addiction. The term alcoholic and what frustrates me about this is, and now experts have come to realize that this isn't helping anyone. People would rather continue to act out on these destructive behaviors and habits than be labeled an alcoholic. And mind you, there is no other substance on this earth, an addictive substance, where if the person using can't, and I'm using air quotes, normally use it, then they're the problem. If you quit smoking for the rest of your life, which I used to be a smoker and I quit when I was about 23, I don't brand myself as I'm a, a nicoholic. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, or a cigaretteaholic. A cigaretteaholic. Foodaholic or whatever it is. Yeah. Aholic. It's the only addictive substance where now you're an alcoholic. It's your problem and you have a disease. Because you are marketed and sold a product that is known to be addictive, but you can't control it. So you're the one that's fucked up. How awful. It's terrible. Yeah, that is, I never thought about it that way. But yeah, that is fucked. It's also the only thing that I know that I've ever seen that if someone quits, then people think that there's something wrong with you. I guarantee if I was an avid cocaine user and I quit doing coke... And I'm like, you guys, I finally got that nasty blow. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> and people would celebrate. <laughs> cut your fingernail. <laughs> I cut that snaggle nail to get those bumps every day. And people would celebrate. They'd be like, God damn, it's about time, Lindsay. You got your shit together. Yeah. I quit drinking. People are like, ooh, why? Right? Now something's wrong with me because now I can't handle my alcohol. On that too, like people who have a high tolerance, be like, oh, well, I have high tolerance. I can handle my alcohol. 
It's almost like you've accomplished something wonderful. And I used to do that. And if you're a lightweight like me, I could have like one or two glasses and I'm like, whoo, carry me out of here. (laughs) And I would pride myself, especially back in the day where I could hang with the guys and drink all night. It's not that I wanted to drink people under the table, but I could rally. You know, I was that person that could rally all night and like hang with the best, so to say. Whatever kind of trophy I wanted back then, I did not get it. (laughs) Yeah, there's no Olympic medal for alcohol tolerance. (laughs) No. So with all that being said, with the rejecting of the stigma of being termed an alcoholic and If I go to a meeting, I would raise my hand and I would say, my name is Lindsay and I'm an alcoholic. I don't care. Again, take what you want and leave the rest. I do not think that people who quit drinking are alcoholics. Alcoholism to me is a term that is outdated. And how am I? If I quit drinking and I'm an alcoholic, an alcoholic is someone who can't manage their consumption of alcohol, but I'm not even drinking alcohol. So how am I an alcoholic if I'm sober? How does that even matter? That I've never understood because I feel like it's so disempowering. And for those who are in the AA community and they do have that piece where they've connected their identity to their alcoholism and they know that, or they've somehow it does help them to know that they, and you know, have a disease and this Mm -hmm. is, they are this. And so I can see on one hand where you would be like, well, I'm an alcoholic. And so therefore there is no slippery slope. It's Mm -hmm. straight into the one little taste and it's over, right? You're Mm -hmm. completely off the wagon using air quotes. And so I see how that might be a helpful tool to use and utilize in order to keep yourself sober. At the same time, I've never understood how it was empowering in a way that like you have to label yourself as something has such a huge stigma just to maintain your sobriety. I I feel like now we have better tools and we have a better way of understanding mental health and addiction that we don't have to do that. Exactly. And a hundred percent, the more interviews I hear of people who have short-term and long-term recovery, a lot of folks needed the term, right? They're like, finally, I know what's wrong with me and they need it, right? It is that diagnosis that they need. And then over time, a lot of folks decide that it doesn't serve them anymore. And some people do, and they use it in a setting like, hey, I don't drink, I'm an alcoholic, right? Just to like have that boundary, that hard boundary. And they use it to help their recovery. I think the goal and the number one thing here is the goal is to stop drinking, If that helps you, it helps you. If it doesn't, it's okay. You don't have to identify as that. If you want to identify as a non-drinker, identify as a non-drinker. If you want to identify as anything else, then you do that. Just the goal is to not drink. So whatever tools you need in order for that to happen, use those tools. That's the biggest thing I've learned in all my research in the last, I would say, year to six months that I've been just kind of diving into these podcasts and I've been reading these books and just there's a lot of commonalities there with the goals to get sober. There's so many ways to get there. And I can speak a little bit to the fact that kind of piggybacking off what you just said about how you are the problem or what's wrong with you. You're not drinking. Mm -hmm. And I have never been a big drinker. 
for aforementioned reasons in the bar scene, but also just makes me feel really crappy. Like I don't have the best detox pathways. And over time I've learned that I just, I have like an alcohol intolerance almost. It makes me feel like death. I have been typically the person at parties who I'm usually the DD or I'm usually not drinking. And I have gotten flat out harassed by people. And it's usually the people who I wouldn't say that person is an alcoholic, but I can tell that they're uncomfortable because I'm not drinking. Mm -hmm. It was a problem for a while where I did not want to be social. Like I had the opposite problem where I would be pressured to drink and I didn't want to, and I didn't have a problem with drinking. Like it wasn't something I identified that it was something I needed to cut out of my life. But I'm like, I don't want to. Why are you trying to force me? Mm-hmm. Like stop. The pressure to drink for even somebody who doesn't want to drink, like I have no desire to drink, is ridiculous. And so then you, you put that on somebody who maybe part of the reason why they don't want to stop drinking is because that means that their social support's going to go right out the window. Because all of a sudden you're the target. And then I like started to do weird shit like where I'd have a red cup with like a Diet Coke. Mm -hmm. And nobody bothered me then. Yeah. Because they thought I had a drink. But if I had a water bottle, that was a problem. Yep. And so I'm like, I get it. I understand how uncomfortable that is. And then also to know that what all you really want to do is have a drink. Mm -hmm. And you just want somebody to leave you the fuck alone about it. Like, stop. That's one of the biggest fears. And thank you for sharing that. That's one of the biggest fears for a lot of folks who want to quit drinking is how am I going to be in a social setting? And the biggest tips that I've heard from, you know, all the interviews I've listened to is always have something in your hand, right? Put something in a cup. You can go up to the bar and ask for something just so people will leave you alone. You're more likely to be left alone if you have a glass with some soda water and lime in it than a water bottle. And that pisses me off so bad because it's, number one, nobody's fucking business. Exactly. It is none of your business, what I drink, what I do. You know, and then there's people like we have our friend, Nicole. She doesn't drink a lot and she's a freaking riot sober. Like you would think she was completely trapped. Like, she's, like she, she is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, some people don't need booze to like let loose, but she plays the part really well. I'm like. That's awesome. Like, I wish I could have that much. I'm usually kind of like, I want, get me out of here. Just, I want to read a book and be a hermit, but it makes me mad. It really, truly does make me mad. It is nobody's business what you're drinking, how much you're drinking. If you had a peanut allergy and then they were serving nuts at the bar, no one would just try to force you to eat a fucking peanut. Right. <laughs> it's insane. And then you're like, whose problem is this really? It's not... To me, it's a societal problem. It's everybody else. The ones who don't want to drink, like me, I'm like, I don't want to drink. I don't give a shit. I'm so glad that I don't drink because I'm hopefully, like, as you continue on your journey of sobriety, like, there is never any pressure. I'm not drinking. I'm not having the temptation. And, you know, like, I'm not, I'm like, fuck yeah, let's be sober together. I'm down. Feels so much better. Yes. And it feels great to have. You, you're an example of, you can do everything without booze. You can have great relationships, friendships, be funny. You're one of the funniest fucking people I know, right? You don't need the social lubricant to be social and to have a good time. And that's reassuring. And I was telling you before, I'm like, I feel like I'm getting all these 
signals like I need to quit drinking. Everyone I, I look up to, all these mentors from afar, like Brene Brown and Glennon Doyle and all that, they're all sober. And I'm like, I don't need to be striving for Carrie Bradshaw. I need to be striving for a real human, right? Well, and like, I think the, the, the thing that I love about that is think about all these brilliant minds and these people who are thought leaders and authors and they're doing amazing things out in the world. They aren't people like me who have never had a problem with alcohol. Like most of them have had some sort of addiction or And they had to work struggle. on their recovery. Yeah, they're an active recovery. And I think that says more than, you know, the stories like me where I'm like, you know, I'm successful without it. But I think I'm in the minority. I really do. I think that there are more people out there who struggle with I mean, it's not to say I don't have my addictions to other things, but this is a big deal because it is such a societal pressure, mm-hmm. you know, to the point where you're like, okay, I would be like, hey, I can't drink because it makes me feel terrible. I wonder if I could like smoke pot instead. And then you're like, why am I trying to figure out what substance is the best, <laughs> party substance is the best substance for me? <laughs> why can't I just have some sparkling fucking water? <laughs> It's stupid. It is. It makes me mad. I get really upset about society and cultural pressures to well, I how think I you, feel. I think you nailed it on the head. It, it is no one's business. And the people who do put on the pressure are the ones where they are uncomfortable and they're the ones questioning their own drinking, right? They're the ones that are uncomfortable in the situation because they're also probably worried, well, if they're not drinking, what do they think about me? Exactly. How do we even navigate that we have a problem? That's up to you. That's up to every listener listening to this thinking, do I drink too much? Should I drink at all? Is alcohol not serving me? Do I feel like I need this when I don't? And in our core, we know we don't need alcohol. What was it for you? Can you share? I know you kind of alluded to it earlier, but do you have like a defining a moment in your head where you're like, this is a problem for me? If you made it to this point, thank you for listening. If you are someone who has ever questioned your drinking like I had for so long, maybe it's time to explore one or two of the many options you have available to you. Alcoholic, non-drinker, or sober curious, there is life beyond the bottle. Again, please note that we are not medical professionals and do not promote or endorse any specific diagnosis or method of treatment. Always reach out to your trusted medical professional before embarking on any major life health changes. Please stay tuned as we continue the conversation next week. The Art of Getting Your Shit Together is produced and edited by LD Coaching and Blush Cactus Boutique Design Studio. We would love it if you'd head over to iTunes and subscribe, leave us five stars, and write a quick review. If you enjoy this podcast, share it with your friends so that we can continue to grow our tribe. Tag us on Instagram at tagist underscore podcast with your shares, and we'll feature you on our story. Don't forget to grab our free guide, five things you can do right now to get your shit together and start living your best life over at tagist.com slash kick more ass. Remember, your life only gets better when you decide to grow, and it's never too late to get your shit together.